Thank you, brother. As you may notice, today we don't have the, the live feed for the video going on, but I think we are recording it and it will be posted later in audio. Um, where's the audio recording? How is it being recorded? Right there. <laughs> oh, okay. Let me just do this real quick. And we don't have a big production here, so this is real time uh, improvising. So we'll put it a little bit closer there. All right, what we don't improvise is the Word of God. We stand on the Word of God, and today we are continuing our sermon series on the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk in Spanish, or however it is that we may pronounce it. I may go back and forth between a couple of pronunciations. So today we come to the study of the five woes that have been given to the Babylonians, right? And today we're going to focus on the third and the fourth woe that are being given as God pronounces judgment on the evil nation that is going to be used to judge Israel. The passage today is from chapter 2 of Habakkuk, and we're going to look to verses 12 through 17. If you are able to stand, let's please stand for the reading of God's word. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. The infallible, inerrant word of God reads as follows. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is, not, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations wear themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as with the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts, that terrified them, for the blood of men and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for you are faithful in your word, for you are faithful in each of our lives this very morning. Lord, as we may be going through tribulations of our own in our lives, in our finances, in our relationships, in our jobs, Lord, we come to you and may we put those at your feet, knowing that you are faithful, that you are a provider, and that no amount of worry will make things change. However, let us be our prayer this morning that our mind and our hearts may be aligned to your will, that your will be done, and that we would accordingly trust you and yet be diligent in the things that you've put before us. Be with us now, Lord, with those that are here and those that are uh, either on their way or are not able to make it today. May you bless them as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the uh, sermon title, as Brother James announced, is Shameless Violence, treating the third and fourth produ- uh, pronouncement of judgment to the Babylonians. That, that is what a woe is in Scripture, uh, although it may be used in a couple of the contexts, primarily 
when scripture says, woe to you, or even Jesus uh, also said, you know, woe to those, or woe to the Pharisees, is basically a, pro a pronouncement of judgment, like you are going to get judged, and it is coming. That's what that means. So just real quick, a quick recap, who are the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans, as are depicted in the book of Habakkuk? Well, the Babylonians were very wicked people, which God was going to use in order to punish and give a really hard spank to his own people, to Israel. Thus far, we have seen some qualities in the person, in the character of Habakkuk. We'll review a couple. We see that Habakkuk is grieved for the rampant evil in the midst of his people. Habakkuk loves his people. And Habakkuk hates evil and hates sin. He's grieved by that. So then the application to us was, are we grieved by evil? Do we love our people, starting with the church? Do we love our church? And then do we, do we love our fellow men outside of the church? And then, as Habakkuk did, do we hate sin? Do we hate the evil that sin causes as we see it around our neighborhood, our state, our country, our world? Else, we will not have a firm foundation, a standard by which to declare what is evil and what is good, and therefore do something that will actually impact the betterment of our culture, our world today. Habakkuk was grieved by evil, hated evil, and loved the people. Now Habakkuk, we also know that, is a person who knows God. Habakkuk knows God intimately. He prays openly with sincerity and with urgency to God. So then the question to us is, do we know God? We may know about God, but do we know God? And more importantly, are we known by God? We can know about God, but we cannot be known by God. In what sense? In the salvation sense. Remember Matthew 7, Jesus says that on that day, many will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and that for you? Like, like I thought we were homies, right? And Jesus will say, get away from me, you worker in iniquity. I never knew you. Right? So do we know God? Do we know God and are we known by him? Are we part of God's family that has been born again, that has been adopted into the family of Christ? And if we do, do we pray with sincerity, with honesty, and with urgency, as Habakkuk did? And then we see Habakkuk in the midst of this urgent supplication of, of prayer in his lamentation. He realizes that God does not work according to his timetable, that is Habakkuk's timetable. And that the timing of man is imperfect versus the timing of God is Perfect, and his perfect will is going to take place. And in that midst of that suffering, that urgency, that penitence, that outcry to the Lord, Habakkuk learns that those people that belong to God are to live in those times by faith. By faith. 
So the question is, are we living by faith today? Or are we on our own timetable lifting our fists to God, asking him why he has done this or that or the other and why he's so unfair to us? Are we on a path to live by faith in our church, in our marriages, in our families? Or are we desperate because those things are perhaps not going too well? In such times, we are called to live by faith. And while we wait on the timetable that God has established, we are to be diligent in the things that God has put before us. That is, being diligent in our studies, being diligent in our jobs, being diligent in our service to the Lord. Because if we are not, we are not living by faith. And in essence, if thus far we could succinctly paraphrase what we've seen in Habakkuk thus far, it would actually be Romans 12, 12, which reads as follows. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Doesn't that kind of sums it up real nicely? As I was studying, I came across this verse. I was like, wow, that's for sure divinely and providentially brought up, right, to remind us so far what can we learn from the character of Habakkuk to be applied to our lives today. So that's a few of the applications that we can draw from the book of Habakkuk thus far. There are others, right? But that's a quick highlight. So now, why was Habakkuk so grieved? Well, he's, he knows that Israel is a wicked people. They were not following the ways of God. And it seemed that God was not really doing much. When he comes to find out that God is doing something, he doesn't like it. God tells him, I'm going to bring restoration, but before I do that, I'm going to punish the people. Consequence must be there before restoration. So the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, will be used to punish Israel for their unrighteousness. Now, as God is telling this to Habakkuk and how things will happen, God is making it clear that he does understand the evil of the Chaldeans and that he's going to use them for judgment. And in God showing Habakkuk that he knows what the Babylonians are up to, he's pronouncing these five woes, these five condemnations that are specific, very specific to the things that the Babylonians are involved in. Last week, we covered the first two, the first two woes. It was, the first one was that God condemns the building up of unrighteous gain. Right? Just... Stacking up all your chips, all your possessions, your riches, and doing that unrighteously at the expense of others. The second woe was that God condemned the unrighteous protection that the Babylonians have uh, had built for themselves. They have nice protected homes and mansions, and they're doing that at the expense of slave labor at the expense of others being killed. Unrighteous safety, unrighteous protection. So in that we saw the application of how Babylon or the Chaldeans become an archetype, a certain type of nation that is going to be the model for many other nations to come. Right? 
throughout world history, we have seen how wicked nations likewise practice these things. Then, as not to be so quick to point fingers to other nations, we also saw that us personally can be guilty of these things that God condemns. We like to live comfortable. We like to be selfish in our material possessions. And we have a natural impulse by nature and by choice to keep our money and our resources to ourselves. Let's just be real. That's our natural impulse, right? And sometimes we do that at the expense of brothers and sisters suffering because they don't have such things. If that's me, if that's you, I pointed out that that is a true indicator of your spiritual immaturity and of the genuineness of your faith. So that's a call for all of us to step up. So now we come to the third and the fourth woe. The third woe is a pronouncement of judgment against unrighteous violence. And the fourth will be a pronouncement of judgment against shameless immorality. Let's take a look at the third woe there. God condemns unrighteous violence. Habakkuk 2.12 reads, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Right? This word iniquity, it's been hijacked by the woke mob. And they've been pretty much indoctrinating uh, young people to think that we must have iniquity. And that's at the expense of others' suffering. Right? We see this in universities more and more, at least in one place. That's not how the Bible uses that word, okay? So we cannot let the modern secular language and those that control language to hijack terms, right? Another example is the rainbow. Every time I get the chance to, I ask my daughter, what is the rainbow? And she's actually wearing a shirt with a rainbow today. And I always ask her and have her tell me what does the rainbow mean? It is the promise that God made that he will not destroy the earth through a flood again. We cannot let others hijack the meaning of that. And I tell you, if somebody ever tells you otherwise, tell them they're crazy and they're in the way to judgment. And we must teach our kids the true meaning of language, the true meaning of what the Word of God says about our world. So in any case, the point here will be that as nations are built on iniquity and on the blood of others, everyone is guilty. Everyone. The Babylonians had built their empire off of the lives and shed blood of their victims. So first we are to note that plundering a nation, building up an empire at the expense of killing the local people, there means that brutal violence had to be suffered by someone. And that is definitely not godly. Now, many take verses like these and say, aha, see, the U.S. was built on the backs of slaves and on violence. Therefore, God would never approve of that. And to that, I say, there is a point to that. We cannot overlook the wicked past, the tainted past of the U.S. There certainly is a tainted history with the endorsement of slavery. And we are not proud of that. We do not approve of that since that goes against the teachings of Christ 
As a matter of fact, it took Christians standing up to this injustice in order to initially raise awareness. First by the Quakers and then by the Methodists. By the year 1770, John Wesley had officially made it known that no Methodist was to be allowed in the slave trade or to own slaves and declare themselves to be a Methodist. Furthermore, we see that slavery, as mentioned in the New Testament, it is not an excuse in order to say that slavery was okay elsewhere. It is not the same type of slavery that, it, that was practiced or even still practiced in the Western world. For instance, in the New, Ten, New Testament concept of slavery, a slave could actually work his way out of slavery, buy his way, his way out of slavery. However, some slaves would choose to stay with their masters in exchange for food, shelter, provision, protection for them and their families. There were bond servants. They loved their masters because their masters provided everything they needed for them and their families. And in fact, there are examples of early century slaves who came out of slavery and actually worked themselves up to places of prestige and rulership. We see that in the Roman Empire. Now, I also like to mention that while plundering and inflicting violence on the nation is sinful, and we condemn that, not all war is sinful. In this wicked and fallen world, there are reasons for just war. Scripture is clear in that. Let us take a quick look at Psalm 144, verse 1. It says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. One more, Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Also, Jesus has told his disciples as they go out and share the gospel, to take a sword. And then one of them was like, oh, how many? He's like, just one. So there might be a time, therefore, when, as far as it depends on me, it will not be possible to be at peace with my neighbor. That needs to be made clear. There might be a time in your life, in my life, when it will not be possible to be at peace as far as it depends on me. That would be especially and obviously true if someone comes and attacks my wife or my kids. Now, some may have an objection and say, oh, you know, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. What about that? My friends, we need to look at the context. Jesus was teaching the principle of being humble and being able to endure humiliation for his name's sake. Talks about the backhanded slap, you being humiliated. So, Christians, some Christians wanting to be pacifists, wrongly apply that concept. We need to be clear that Scripture calls godly men to defend, calls godly men to stand firmly against adversity, calls godly men to stand in defense of the weak, even if that implies being violent in order to stop the evil ones, to stop the bullies, to stop 
the irreverent that are hurting and attacking you or your family in self-defense. So then there is unjust violence. God condemns it, 100%. We are to live, as far as it is, up to us to live peaceably with others. And with that said, there's also a time and place where righteous war must be waged in order to stop evil. So the next up is the accumulation of unrighteous power and wealth in the wicked, which ultimately is all built up in vain. It's all going to burn. Verse 13 reads as follows. Behold, it is not from, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Now I'll confess that initially I was taken aback. I was confused by how, how this verse applies here. Now remember, this is not allegory. This is not doctrine. This is not prescriptive text. This is poetic text. The key of this text is that all those nations who are building up unrighteous empires through violence, through the, the, the backs of, of those that they enslave, through the shedding of blood, all that work, all that labor that they went through will ultimately be burned up. It's going to be destroyed and it's going to be exposed. God himself, speaking of the judgment of Babylon, says the following in Jeremiah 50 verse 32. The proud one shall stumble and fall with none to raise him up. And I will kindle a fire in his cities and it will devour all that is around him. So what happens then to those who are consumed with building up the riches, the comforts, the luxuries of this world? That might be us, right? But yeah, those wicked people. Yeah, those rich, wicked politicians. No, what about you? What about me? Matthew Henry has an, a nice uh, line describing that, and he says, those that eager in their worldly pursuits labor in the very fire and make themselves perfect slaves to their lusts. Unquote. It's all going to burn. All the material possessions that we built and what we do that putting those things before God, it'll be in vain. It'll be exposed. It will be shamed. So that's what that means, that verse. All the Babylonians are building up, piling up. It's going to come to nothing. It's going to be put to shame and burned up. Verse 14, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is in the context of God bringing his judgment. So we are told that in that context, as God judges righteously, perfectly, that his glory is going to be made known. His holiness will be made known to the world when he judges. So in the coming judgment of Israel by the Babylonians, God is going to show his glory. And then later in the coming judgment of the Babylonians by the Persians, he's going to show his glory. By God's judgment in our current wicked world, which by the way starts with the church, the punishing and judging of the church for 
the disobedience, God will manifest his glory there as well. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve about it. It doesn't mean that we don't pray about it. It doesn't mean that we don't plead with God, that he would make us faithful to his word, to him, to Christ, by the Spirit. But he will show his glory through judgment. So then, in which, if the judgment of God shows his holiness, his greatness, his perfection, in which judgment then will God be most glorified? Let us think about that. That will be in the condemning of sin of his people in the person of Christ. The ultimate manifestation of God's holiness, justice, love, kindness, grace is in the gospel. The good news that the holy wrath of God has been met and in which no sinner will be excused. Jesus was crushed, killed, murdered, humiliated in order to pay the penalty for our sins. For those that trust in the perfect sacrifice of Christ, by faith, become a new creation and are reconciled to God. Jesus was judged for the sins of those that belong to him. Not for the sins of all, for the sins of those who trust in him and are Christians, born-again Christians. Isaiah 53.10 tells us that. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord, of God the Father, to crush him, Jesus. He, will, he has put him to grief. So when God executes his justice, his glory is manifested. And ultimately is manifested in the judging of sin of the elect. His glory is shown there. And we are yet to see the full manifestation when Jesus comes back in his second coming, when he comes as judge and king. Not as a baby, mild, meek baby, humble. In a, no, he's going to come as a judge, as a king, as a ruler. The justice of God brings the manifestation of his glory. Let us move on to the fourth woe. God condemns shameless depravity. Verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. So drunkenness, often in games, until it fosters and brings out the depravity of men. It doesn't cause the depravity of men. It fosters and brings out the depravity that is in us. In this case, we see how drunkenness brings out the depravity of, of twisting sexuality. Galatians 5.19 reminds us of that as well. It reads, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a similar passage in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. It's almost, almost for rain. And the interesting thing is that there Paul says, and so were some of you, but now you have been washed. I'm talking about the new birth. Sometimes I, I speak with brothers and sisters. I say, hey, um, I stumbled. I, I fell. I watched something I shouldn't watch. I drank something I shouldn't drink. So should me, I condemned. They don't grief. In short, my response is, brother, sister, are you grieved? Yes. Then you are alive. If you were dead, you would feel nothing. You would be comfortable with it. You would feel at home with it. Not the case for those that have been changed, those that have been washed, those that have been regenerated. The Holy Spirit will not leave you alone. And in that, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who cleanses you and forgives you. Now, verse Romans 13, 13, it says, Not in orgies and rottings, not in quarreling and jealousy. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. The depravity and wickedness that is being described there by the, the fourth woe of basically making somebody drink so that they could be taken advantage of sexually. I mean, you hear about those things today, right? You drug, you heard people being drugged and, and abused. It was going on back then, right? The heart of men is evil that has never changed. And the depravities that we think of in order to satisfy our flesh, it's nothing new. It's been around. Common denominator, the depravity of men. And as that becomes more and more rampant, it becomes shameless. Right? Here the verse in, in Romans 13, 13, it says to walk properly as in the daytime. Right? As in the daytime, like everybody's looking, the light is out. So I, I gotta be careful how I behave. Whereas in the night, when no one's looking, then I can go and do my thing, nobody's looking. But as the world is more and more shameless, now it's out in the open. And I think we see that in our day, with specifically with sexual deviancy. Verse 16 says, You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. There will come a time when God will turn the, extra, the extravagant and immoral lifestyle into shame. There will be a time when the shameless glory of the wicked will be turned into shameful ridicule. Because this type of lifestyle, as shown by the Babylonians, it's like they're, they're living large, right? They're living it up. And as part of that comes, like I often say, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, right? What is the current state of our culture in which people try to portray a certain image? Sad, right? I'm having a great time, partying, drinking, drugs, girls. There will come a time when God will expose that and put 
those to shame. Now, here, there's a description that when God brings judgment, he says that the Chaldeans, the wicked ones, are also going to drink something, and they're going to be drunk with something. The cup in the Lord's right hand, they are in trouble. What does that mean? Drinking the cup in the Lord's right hand, it is not talking about the Lord's Supper. This is talking about God's judgment. A little bit more on that later. It also talks about they're going to show their uncircumcision. What is uncircumcision? We talked about it when we went through through the book of Philippians, right? But it's basically a sign. Uncircumcision is a sign that you are not part of God's family. You are not part of God's covenant. You are outside. There's a division made. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant for God's people in the Old Testament, and it ultimately pointed to the circumcision of the heart. When Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, gave a discourse to the people, basically preaching the gospel to them, telling them to repent, he made that very clear. Acts 7, verse 51, it said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. You think the Jewish audience that he had liked what he said? What did they do to him? Stone him to death. Right? So this uncircumcision, meaning being outside of God's covenant people, leads to drinking what's in the Lord's right hand. Judgment. Jeremiah 25.15 reads, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Think of this as a dam being held and it's just building up more and more and more and more and more water. And there's a small town that lives right there. As that is building up, the owner of that place has a determined time where he's going to open that up and he's going to crush the people. Picture that, but infinity fold of the wrath of God coming upon the wicked. This means that deceiving, receiving divine judgment is having to deal with the divine judgment of God. And there's two options. This wrath that the righteous judgment of God will be executed will either crush and condemn the specific person to damnation, to hell, or the other option is Jesus would have taken that place for you in judgment. The cup of wrath was endured and drank by Jesus. Luke twenty-two forty-one 41 reads as follows. And he, meaning Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw 
and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And friends, think about this. Jesus, in his humanity, in his body of being a man, he became a man under the law, Galatians 4. He dreaded the fact that he would have to take the wrath of Almighty Father God. So that we would be saved from that wrath. We are saved from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9. If Jesus, upon praying this, was so distressed that he started to sweat blood as he was preparing to take this wrath. If he was so distressed by that temporary separation, Jesus was not afraid of the cross, by the way. Jesus was so distressed for that temporal separation from the Father because he would take the punishment for the sin of the elect. Imagine how much more should you be distressed if you are not in the family of Christ. If Jesus himself was distressed, imagine how much more we should be at the thought of taking the cup of wrath of God Almighty. Let us never take that lightly. Verse 17, it reads, The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of men and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So those that would come across this prophecy of how the destruction and judgment was going to come to the Babylonians, they would be familiar in understanding that the mountains of Lebanon in northern Israel were known for their huge, beautiful, majestic cedar trees. As a matter of fact, some of those were used to make the temple in Jerusalem. This cedar to Lebanon symbolized great physical majesty, strength, power. However, even the glory of those trees was nothing in comparison that the glory of God's judgment would bring that would show his power and might. Psalm 29 verse 5 tells us that. It says, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. And this is to ensure that the people there that would see the greatness of those cedars would know that the glory of God is plentiful, more majestic than those cedar trees. So then what can we take away? Right, The book of Habakkuk is uh, sort of gloom and doom, right? And it should not be taken lightly. But nevertheless, there's so much to grasp and learn and apply to our own personal lives. We have seen that the prosperity of the wicked is favoring not really the nations itself, but if, if it favors specific selfish individuals, those that are on the top. Because even the Babylonians within themselves, they were vicious. It's not like all the Babylonians were enjoying the, the fruits of the plundering. And judgment is going to come on that. 
some of the most uh, some of the most vicious rulers, even in recent history and in actuality, come to mind. North Korea, Kim Jong Un, Pol Pot from Cambodia, Idi Amin Dada from Uganda, Fidel Castro, Cuba, Hugo Chavez, Venezuela. Right, they're plunder their own nations, but it doesn't mean that they're living it up. The few at the top are the ones who enjoy the shedding of blood and the slavery that they put in their people. Millions of people dead, literally, in those the list I just read. The common denominator is that that type of godless, in our modern world, that, that type of godless Marxist-Leninist dictatorships who represent wicked nations will be judged. It is not that those wicked nations will prosper and the people within there are prospering. No, the dictators and their families prospered at the expense of their people. Millions dead. Especially those who dare to dissent with them. Note, they and other like them will drink the cup of God's wrath. Take that to the bank. Now, if we were to take a moral pulse of our culture, by and large, hear me, by and large, celebrity culture, academia, media, and a large portion of the political ruling party are okay with this type of ideology. Not even secretly, openly are okay with it. And in some cases, approve and honor these dictators by name. The church is not to be silent or neutral when speaking in these relevant matters. For the judgment of God is at stake. Secondly, evil nations do not begin with evil masses of people that all of a sudden decide to go and plunder a nation. Rather, it begins with evil hearts of individuals. Scripture says that the heart of men is wickedly deceitful. So as long as we don't guard our hearts, as long as we are passive in our spiritual life, our evil hearts will be contributing our grain of sand to this evil and wicked generation. As much responsibility as we have to stand up for righteousness, to speak truth, to stand up for the gospel, we are still responsible to be diligent in the things of God. The righteousness of a nation then is not brought forth by the masses, but by the individual righteous hearts that then can come together. For the men, love Jesus, love your families, honor your wives, love her as Christ has loved the church. Teach your children the gospel, evangelize them. For the women, love your home, labor for the Lord, respect and honor your husbands. For you single people, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the other things that you seek that are honorable, like a spouse, like employment, like provision, 
will be granted to you. It starts in the hearts of individuals. And then lastly, as we strive to be righteous in Christ and to stand up for righteousness against evil, you will face opposition. You will be called hateful. You will be called a bigot. You will be called a religious fanatic. You will be called a white supremacist. Yes, I have been called that, believe it or not. Born and raised in Mexico. And so has Larry Elder, born and raised in South Central, which is part of my hood too. Why? My friends, because although truth is not hate, the world hates truth. And the world therefore hates Jesus. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So the question is, does the world love you? Is the world in agreement with your convictions and your way of life? If that's even a slight yes, my friends, that's a red flag. Be careful. And as we are hated by the world, remember also the words of Jesus that are most comforting. He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. Let us this morning, my brothers and sisters, live that out by faith. The righteous shall live by faith in the midst of all this chaos. As we stand faithful to righteousness and to the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all those who believe, Romans 1.16. We are to be diligent and labor in what God has put in front of us. That is our families, our church, our studies, our jobs, or even the, the seeking there of employment. And do it with diligence, doing it as unto the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, because in your son, Jesus, we have the invitation to come and drink of the cup of salvation, Lord, of the cup of communion with you, rather than on our own to drink the cup of wrath. May we put our faith in Christ, knowing that he is the God who forgives our iniquity, who forgives our sin. And Lord, uh, remind us that as we are by default people who have selfish hearts, not to blame others for that, but to be accountable to ourselves within our church and ultimately to you. Be with us now, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.